Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm continuing our mini-series on the 100 years of fascist history. This week I'm talking about the 2010s, so that's every time from 2010 to 2020. That means that I'm going to be closing out this mini-series next week, talking about just the last two years. Uh, these last couple years, you know, starting in 2010, have been a doozy, so there's a lot of shit to talk about. First, talking about some of the unsuccessful attempts that the right wing has made to gain power in the world in this decade. Probably the most important of these was the uh, legislative and electoral attempts of Marianne Le Pen, who succeeded her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, as the leader of the French Nationalist Party, uh, the Front National. She contested the French presidential election in 2012 and only made uh, 17% of the vote. She did not make it to the second round. That election resulted in the election of Nicolas Sarkozy. The next French presidential election was in 2017, and in this one, she did a whole lot better. Uh, she fared very well. She was the second-place finisher in the first round of the election, 21% of the vote to uh, Macron's 24% of the vote. Very, very close. Uh, however, in the second round of voting, she only got 33% of the vote to Macron's 66 which is why he became the president of France. Moving on to successful seizures of power by the right wing, Viktor Orban in Hungary and his Fidesz party had led Hungary at the turn of the millennium, you know, in the late 90s, but he returned to power in 2010 and has been the prime minister of Hungary ever since. He has turned his country and his party further and further right. They have become openly anti-liberal, uh, which is a phrase that Orban uses himself, you know, indicating that he is critical of liberal values such as inclusion, diversity, even democracy. He is anti-immigrant to a disturbing and incredibly serious degree, engaging in campaigns of violence and exclusion against people of color and immigrants in Hungary. He's also extremely anti-queer, employing the power of Hungary to crack down on any uh, LGBTQ type organizations or people who try to promote inclusion, acceptance, or safety for LGBTQ people in Hungary. He's also just anti-left in general, trying seriously to stop the power of the left, especially in Hungarian universities, shutting down important Marxist centers that had been in the um, Hungarian state for an extremely long time. Now, going in chronological order, the next big, big, big seizure of right-wing power in the 21st century, uh, in, you know, in the second decade of the 21st century, was Golden Dawn's extremely terrifying electoral result in Greece in 2012. At this time, Greece was undergoing a major economic and financial crisis related to some um, debt defaults that the Greek government had incurred to the European Union. And this party, Golden Dawn, which had been founded as a fascist organization back in the 80s and became an officially incorporated party in 1993, by 2012, it was the largest party in Greece, the largest party in the Greek parliament. And that makes it the most powerful uh, openly fascist organization in Europe at the time. Uh, they were the only potentially leading, like, just like pretty openly fascist party that Europe had seen since World War II. Now, of course, Golden Dawn claims that they're not fascists, but they are nationalist, racist, xenophobic, misogynist, 
Um, they believe in irredentism. You know, they think that Greece should be significantly geographically bigger than it currently is, primarily incorporating parts of what is now Turkey. Like, as in, like, they're talking about, like, ancient Greek political claims or, like, medieval claims that are about the Byzantine Empire or stupid shit like that. The Golden Dawn really disintegrated quite quickly, though, because they were a fascist organization and prepared for actual political power. They engaged in a lot of political violence with anti-fascist organizations and also the Greek state in 2012 and 2013. And they were really taken down by the results of a murder trial uh, that resulted in the death of an anti-fascist rapper in Greece. Uh, this essentially destroyed the party and resulted in their rapid decline from power and prominence. Uh, at this point, basically all the leaders of Golden Dawn are just in jail. Continuing on, in 2014, uh, Narendra Modi became the Prime Minister of India. He was, and remains, the leader of the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party, uh, and is a part of an umbrella organization in India called the RSS, which is also a Hindu nationalist organization founded during the colonial era. Modi was the regional leader of India's state of Gujarat, one of the most, is one of the biggest, most economically and populous important countries in India. Uh, he led India in 2014 after decades, I mean, kind of like half a century of power from the Congress Party, which is an umbrella organization in India that sort of encompasses everything from uh, communists to uh, the center. Modi, however, is a nationalist and has engaged in a lot of democratic backsliding. You know, he is not particularly interested in uh, voting efficacy. He's not interested in electoral safety. He's not interested in those things. He is specifically anti-Islam and anti-Muslim. And he and his party promote the idea that India is naturally and only for Hindu people, despite the fact that 100 million Muslim people live in India and Islam has been present in India since like the 800s, you know, for like over a thousand years. He's also presided over and essentially accepted a lot of anti-Muslim riots, a lot of violence, and also a significant rampaging campaign of violence against women engaged on the part of um, patriarchal forces in India. Further in the successes of the right wing in the 21st century, uh, Duterte was elected the president of the Philippines in 2016. He was a sort of strong arm dictatorial type mayor of Davao City, which was the third most populous city in the Philippines. As mayor and then later as president, Duterte presided over a massive state violence campaign, supposedly against crime, uh, you know, and against drug trades and stuff like that. In reality, this was a crackdown on impoverished parts of Philippine cities and on impoverished people in Philippine cities. Uh, most insidiously, Duterte not only like ordered this kind of state violence, and by state violence, I mean like police coming into rooms and shooting people, uh, police breaking up uh, housing developments, police kicking people out of their homes and stealing from them. He not only presided over this and ordered it, he actually personally participated in it. Like he went out with guns and shot people, uh, essentially as a PR move to show just how serious and how hard on crime he was. Now, Trump would come next in this timeline, but I'm going to skip ahead to Bolsonaro because I'm going to talk a little bit more about Trump. Uh, in 2018, Jair Bolsonaro became the president of Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro came to power after a major political scandal in Brazil, uh, which is known as car wash. 
Uh, car wash was essentially an unparalleled bribery slash corruption system that involved the previous ruling party of Brazil, the Workers' Party, uh, the PT. Uh, the PT at the time was run by the then president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, uh, who was a uh, a woman and also a former guerrilla fighter uh, during the Brazilian dictatorship back in the 60s and 70s. She was taken out of power in what many Brazilians call a legal coup. Uh, that is, she was re removed from the presidency by the cabinet uh, in a legal means that is not unlike the, you know, part of the constitution that allows the cabinet to remove the president of the United States, for example. Uh, she was replaced temporarily by a man named Timmer, uh, who then led, led the way for the election in 2018. Uh, he did not contest the election, uh, but the election and the sort of like real humiliating defeat and exposure of the problems in the Workers' Party in Brazil led to the election of a sort of outsider candidate, Bolsonaro. Now, he's not an outsider candidate in that he wasn't involved in politics before. He's been deeply involved in Brazilian politics for decades, first as a military officer at the tail end of the dictatorship period, and then as a member of the Brazilian Congress as a right-wing firebrand. In 2018, he contested the election against uh, Edad, who was a sort of Lula stand-in, Lula being the most popular Brazilian political figure in history, like like in all of history, is the most popular Brazilian to have ever lived. Um, but he couldn't stand election because he was under trial for this car wash shit. Uh, so Bolsonaro was elected. He is a racist, a sexist. He is anti-indigenous people. He is critical of black people. He is anti-Amazon, not the company, but like the geographical and like ecological area. He supports deforestation, just like pretty openly. His connections to the military and to the military governments of the past essentially are a threat to return to that form of governments in Brazil. And the fact that he is up for re-election against Lula uh, at the end of this year means that Brazil is going to face a serious potential for electoral violence and dictatorship unlike they have seen for quite some time. Going back a little bit, back to 2016, uh, we also saw the election of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a businessman, a firebrand nationalist, a xenophobe, and he campaigned primarily in 2016 on his claims that the Republican Party establishment was weak, that the United States needed to prevent the immigration of Muslims and also all people from Latin America because of his racist ideology that claimed that these people don't belong in the United States or that they're somehow parasites on the United States political and economic system. He also campaigned on a populist economic message saying that the deserving members of the United States' population, which obviously everybody knew he meant white people, deserved actual economic reforms that might potentially benefit them. He delivered pretty seriously on his nationalist and xenophobic campaign promises, but ignored the second entirely. And of course, as is always the case with a nationalist, xenophobic, racist political candidate, uh, sexism and gender discrimination and anti-queer politics also came hand in hand with Trump's politics. Donald Trump is a part of a major turn toward open racism and nationalism in the United States, uh, especially on the part of white people in the United States. Uh, he was a major 
part of the current realignment that is happening in the United States Republican Party from a sort of like uneasy alliance between Christian conservatives and the remainder of the classically liberal party that the Republican Party was in the mid 20th century. Now it's just like just a straight up right wing racist party. A major part of this realignment in the Republican Party and the United States in general was the alt-right, which I talked about a little bit in the previous week's episode on fascism and the rise of the right wing in the 2000s, like in the first decade of the 2000s. But in the 2010s, the alt-right really comes into its own as a major, like inherent part of Donald Trump's electoral condition. Uh, They were a major part of his coalition and key to his victory. Uh, Some of the people involved in this ideological push are people like Richard Spencer or Milo Yiannopoulos or a lot of other people involved in um, the alt-right. In addition to these electoral victories of the right wing in the 2010s, the 2010s also saw a major surge in openly right-wing violence, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, Again, going in chronological order, Anders Breivik of Norway attacked leftist youth organization members uh, early in the decade in Norway. He killed 69 people at a youth camp run by the Labour Party of Norway, a sort of center-left party, and also killed eight others in a car bombing at a government office in Oslo. Breivik is openly fascist, nationalist, anti-communist, misogynist. He's he's a neo-Nazi. Breivik is alive and in prison in Oslo. Another person who engaged in right-wing violence is Elliot Roger, uh, who killed seven people in Isla Vista, which is in Santa Barbara, California, uh, in 2014. Uh, He was a student at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is probably the most clearly motivated killer, uh, motivated by the quote-unquote incel ideology. Uh, His motivation for killing these people, whom he killed at sororities and fraternities in the area, uh, was because he thought that he deserved to have sex with women, uh, and that these women were not having sex with him and were instead having sex with other people. He specifically notes that he thinks they were undeservedly having sex with black men, uh, as opposed to him, uh, he himself having been of mixed race, white, and East Asian heritage. Uh, So his rampage resulted in seven deaths, uh, including himself. Uh, He famously left uh, several YouTube comments and uh, videos that were essentially his manifesto saying why he had engaged in his killing. Further, Dylan Roof, a neo-Nazi killer in Charleston, killed nine people in 2016 at a black church in Charleston in the United States. Uh, All nine people that he killed were black. Uh, He was an open neo-Nazi and essentially trying to start a race war in the United States. In 2017, further right-wing violence uh, was seen in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Uh, This was the peak of alt-right power in the United States. This was an open fascist rally that was carried out by some of the leading members and leading lights of the fascist coalition that helped form the ideological basis of Donald Trump's election in 2016. Uh, You know, these are the people that provided the the sort of like outsider ideology that a person like, for example, Steve Bannon fueled Donald Trump's election with. Uh, This rally and the violence at it resulted in the murder of a leftist woman named Heather Heyer 
by a fascist named James Alex Fields, uh, who ran her and several other people over with his car, uh, which is a common form of right-wing violence. It's a common way that fascists engage in political violence. And finally, in 2019, we saw the Christchurch mosque shootings uh, in New Zealand, Christchurch being a city in New Zealand. Uh, Brenton Harrison Tarrant killed 51 people and injured 40, all Muslim, at two mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand. He live-streamed his attack. He didn't, he didn't just like leave a manifesto. He, he live-streamed it on Twitch and was planning to kill more people when he was found by the police and stopped from doing so. He was motivated by great replacement ideology, which claims that white people in various European and settler colonial areas in the world are being replaced demographically in their countries by immigration and uh, outpopulation by people of color. Uh, this is an ideology that's very old, but uh, very much took hold on the right wing in the white parts of the world in the 2010s. Now, if that sounded like a terrible litany, just like list of awful shit that happened in that decade, uh, that's because a lot of awful shit happened in that decade. The story of the 2010s is the rise, the return of fascism, of the right wing, of right wing power and ideology, not just in the United States, not just in the Western part of the world, but all over the place. Uh, India too, the Philippines, Brazil, all over Latin America. This is the major political force that was in, like, in power and growing in the 2010s. And unfortunately, here we are in the 2020s and it has not stopped. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Uh, if you really like it, then tell your friends, family, and comrades about it, or check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at fascism 15. That's 15 spelled out again, or at hist of the right. That's H I S T of the right. All right. Next week, I'm going to continue and conclude this 100 years of fascism uh, little mini series by talking about the last couple years, focusing primarily on the attempted coup of last year in the United States and other developments around the world. And then after that, I will start a different mini series. All right, I will talk to you next week. Bye.